0: Cast. it's not about the corner office it's not about the fancy title it's not even about the extra money responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you and that care takes on many forms this podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, joining us today is Jonah Larkin. After selling his company in 2005, Jonah found himself completely burned out, physically, mentally, and spiritually. This led him on a 10-year adventure of self-discovery. Besides traveling, Jonah dove deep into meditation, attending multiple months-long retreats, sitting for 10-plus hours a day. Now, he helps founders, executives, and those in the helping professions create higher levels of self-mastery. Join me in welcoming Jonah Larkin to the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Jonah, thanks for being with us today. It's a
1: real pleasure, Earl. Thanks for uh, having me.
0: Yeah, no, man, I'm excited about this. You know, we were talking uh, a little bit before the the work up here, and you were telling me about some of your your surfing adventures here. But uh, with all the kind of experiences, you know, having your own business, doing the traveling, the meditation, I'm really excited to hear your answer to the question I start all my guests with. When you hear the words responsible leadership, what does that mean to you?
1: It's a really good question, and uh, I think I'd like to answer it in two parts. Go for it. The first thing I would say when I think of responsible leadership is, to me, a leader is somebody who takes 100% responsibility for the results in their life. Um, and what I mean by that is, look, I I was telling you about a surfing accident I had and, uh, I got pretty injured, fairly injured. Uh, That was a couple months ago. And I realized that I had a choice. I could say, oh, poor me. Uh, I got injured and now I'm going to have to rehab for several months. Or I could say, I created this. Now, whether I created it or not is open to debate. But the point is, is stepping into that mindset of I created this and I am responsible for this is a much more empowering mindset. And so I think of uh, Jocka Willink's great book, Extreme Ownership, and that's Mm -hmm. what it's all about. It's all about taking 100% responsibility. And on the other side, I think about the 15 commitments of conscious leadership. And the first commitment is taking responsibility for the results in your life. And so that's the first thing is taking 100% responsibility for everything. And then the second part, I would break responsible down into response able. So are you able to respond? And the real question is, is when something happens that you don't like, how do you respond and are you able to respond? And so that's how I would define responsible leadership in my mind.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. And you hit on so much there and, you know, um, being being a marine myself I'm a big fan of Jacko Wellunk. a lot of the stuff he writes in his books are, are things that that we were taught uh in the marine corps so it really struck me uh, struck out to me what he was writing and but what you said there again I think is is very valuable because you know you mentioned the the, the surfing accident and, and taking responsibility and and you know you could debate whether it was really something you did or not what you know, when you take it back to the base uh, of the situation, I'm going to make an assumption. Nobody had a gun to your head. Nobody forced you to get on the surfboard. Nobody forced you to paddle out there. Nobody forced you to get on top of the wave. You took those things on knowing that there was a risk of, of potentially getting hurt and and taking that responsibility, I would imagine, helped you come to grips with everything and get on that path to healing a lot quicker, right? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah, you you
1: absolutely nailed it. And it, it hasn't necessarily been easy. I mean, so many people uh, step into a victim mindset. And it happens to me occasionally. Like, I'm not immune to that. But luckily, you know, the, the wisdom of age has provided me with enough experience that I know it's no longer useful. Being a victim is not a useful way of approaching the world because it takes away any agency that I have. So for me to just say, you know what, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Me taking responsibility is the most useful and uh, mentally positive thing I can do, so I'm gonna do it. And then a deeper, then, then there's also a part of me, and this is just a spiritual belief, And, uh, you know, I say, hey, believe what you want. This is what works for me. What works for me is that I believe that a deeper part of myself chose to be injured in the way I was injured. Now, that's just me. It helps me deal with it, digest it, and turn difficult situations into initiations. And initiations is something that we can touch on in a little bit when we talk about masculine archetypes. But... I believe that initiation is a, is a key part of uh, becoming a man.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and what I love about what you just said there is it reminds me going back to the very first interview I did on, on this podcast uh, was uh, a friend of mine named Dov Barron. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of any of Mm -hmm. Dov's work, but uh, I have not. I think, uh, I think you two would hit it off because he's got a very spiritual mindset, but he he went through something, uh, you know, quite a bit more dramatic, but similar uh, injury-wise. He uh, was free climbing. Um, I want to say it was outside of Vancouver. I can't remember the uh-huh. name of the mountain. Uh, but he lost his he lost his grip and he fell. I want to say it was like 180 feet. And as he Ooh. said, it, as he puts it, he Humpty Dumpty'd himself on a rock. And uh, luckily, they Ooh. were able to put everything back together. But it was that. It was that accident and him essentially being forced into six to eight months of bed rest and rehab and going back to his spirituality roots that kind of got him on the path to where he is now. And and, uh, I'm not going to list off all of his credentials, but he's very successful at what he does now. And, And so I guess my point coming back here is I think you're right, you know. Maybe you chose to be injured that way, but, you know, maybe the universe chose to injure you for some reason of enlightenment, right?
1: That's right. That's right. And, uh, I mean, usually I'd be waking up every single morning early, heading out to the wave surfing and all that stuff. And I can't do that right now. And so one of the things I've been doing is writing and I've been writing a lot and, you know, apparently I started writing a book unbeknownst to me but uh that's what's coming out of it so you never know what happens or why it happens but uh for me at least if i can keep my eyes wide open and show up in that way then i believe that that is what the universe wants for me so that's again my spiritual beliefs feel free to have your own
0: yeah no, again, and and you mentioned Jocko uh, earlier and, and uh, you know, like I said, big fan. And, and the first time my wife listened to him and heard him say, good. Uh, mm-hmm. She's like, is that where you got that from? Because that's what I always say. When something happens, it's like, good. You know, the, the car broke yeah. down. Good. W- w- that means we get to get a new car. We get to get this one fixed. Or, you know, good. It broke down here instead of broke down when I was doing 70 down the highway. You know, because those things have happened. Uh, you yeah. can't go back and, and unbreak the car. It's already broken. What are you doing now? Right.
1: That's right. Yeah. One of my, uh, one of my mentors says, you know, the great thing about the past is it's the past.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, so let's go ahead actually, cause I'm very interested to, to have this conversation. I know there's a lot that we can get into here with, with the experiences and, uh, you know. 40, 45 minutes sounds like a lot of time until you start talking. And then we're going to be here two minutes later, looking back and like, oh crap, it has been 45 minutes, but these masculine archetypes now uh, for, for listeners here, and I'm going to have a link to to Jonah's YouTube channel, but he does a masterful job in breaking down these, these archetypes um, on his channel. But let's dive into those here. So let's, let's talk about what are the masculine archetypes that, that are kind of prevalent?
1: Yeah. I mean, great question. So the masculine archetypes uh, come from a Jungian psychology and uh, Carl Jung, one of the fathers of modern psych- psychology, uh, broke down the archetypes into the masculine, the, the anima, and the feminine, the animus. And um, later, Uh, psychologist uh, uh, Robert Moore broke those uh, masculine archetypes down into four uh, smaller sub-archetypes. And those archetypes are the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. And the reason why archetypes are so useful is because they represent different parts of ourselves, and when we start to create more self-awareness around what's happening in our life, we can look at the things that are going well, and we can think, look at the things that are going not so well, and we can map those things back to the archetypes. So for instance, let's say that uh, you are really a great business person. Let's say you know how to get things done. Let's say you know how to be accountable. Let's say that you deliver for your clients on time. That would be the warrior archetype. The warrior is somebody who gets things done, doesn't take any crap from anybody, is clear on what their uh, boundaries are, makes things happen, but doesn't seek to... Push others down. You know they seek to bring others up with them. This this is really the essence of the of the, of the warrior archetype. Now, let's say you were really good at business. Let's say you really did things well, but you just treated your employees like garbage. Let's say that you um, you know didn't pay them well. Let's say you belittled them. <clears throat> let's say that uh, you put them down. That would be an immature warrior archetype because a true, fully expressed masculine warrior archetype, yes, they're powerful. Yes, they know that they have the ability to use violence if they need to, but ultimately they're about lifting other people up, not stepping on
0: people. Does that make sense? No, you're you're preaching to the choir. I, I love the way you, you just broke that down. And, and immaturity is the, the, the same exact word I use there, but but keep going. You're, you're singing to the yeah. choir.
1: So you can look at any of these different archetypes. So the magician archetype is the archetype of self-awareness, of knowing who you are and uh, knowing what your role is in the world. Um, and so... There is a developmental process for each one of these archetypes from uh, the psychology of being a boy into the fully expressed man. And so we just went through the psychology of the warrior. Uh, The psychology of the magician, like I said, is about self-awareness. It's about the ability to look inside. It's about the ability to, to heal oneself and heal others. And Uh, when you look at like kids, they're always, they're, they're joking around, right? They're playing, they're being tricksters. And this, this is what the magician archetype is like in an immature way. And then that child becomes precocious and then slowly grows. And through experience starts to understand what their purpose is and what their role is in life. Now, we see plenty of people as adults who manipulate others for their own gain. And so that would be one of the unconscious uh, boy psychology representations or immature psychology representations of the magician. The, the, the other side of that polarity would be uh, somebody who, who denies and doesn't take responsibility, right? Oh, uh, don't blame me. I'd had nothing to do with that. Versus the magician in his fullness is the one who takes, who steps up, takes full responsibility and says, you know what? I know myself. I know that I could have done things differently. And as a result, I'm going to go back and I'm going to try to make things right versus the manipulator who like, you know, basically figures out how to manipulate people and the person who's like the quote innocent one. And so that's how the magician works. Uh, the lover is, is uh, you know, the, the, the fully expressed masculine lover is somebody who just has a lust for life who loves all things, who, you know, steps out into nature and, loves to be with other people and have a great time and laugh and cry and just fully the man who is not, un, who's, who's not disconnected from his emotions, but it is fully alive. You know, we all have friends like this. You know, the guy who uh, I, I'm thinking of one of, my, one of my buddies, Noah, and it's just like he's always lived life like full out, no matter what he did, even when he was self-destructive. He was living his life to the fullest. It's one of those people who you just want to be around because they're just so much fun. This is the lover in their fullness. But there's the dark sides as well. The dark side is is the uh, the addicted lover, the the person who's like the sex addict who, who actually can't get through the day without constantly being in that state. And then the other side of, of the uh, shadow lover archetype is is the one who's who's impotent the one who is like oh poor me nobody loves me etc etc and so we have the warrior the magician and the lover and all of those archetypes as they mature go into the uh, king archetype the sovereign and the king in his fullness has full command over his kingdom so what's your kingdom your house your work Uh, your family. And the fully expressed king is wise. He's lived through ups and downs, and he's seen things come before. And his job is to really lift other people up. His job is to make sure that all the other people in his kingdom have what they need in order to survive, and not just survive, but thrive. And so the shadow part, you know, there's a, there's a negative and positive polarity to each of these shadows. The shadow part of, of the king, or the immature part, is the tyrant. You know, the king who's so insecure. If anybody says anything against him or anything that he doesn't like, he steps on them. He belittles them. He throws them out of the kingdom. This is the tyrant. And then on the other side, the negative polarity is the weakling king. You know, the king who who actually, uh, you know, may use force to try to get people to do something, but ultimately on the inside is just a boy, a scared little boy. And he's using all his authority to try to make people do things. And this is not the mature uh, aspect. And so the king is really the conglomeration and fully expressed aspect of all of these archetypes. And so if you're looking to see like, hey, what am I doing? Well, what am I not doing? Well, Well, just take one area of your life and that you're not doing well. And I guarantee you'll be able to find it in one of the archetypes that you need to grow up in. And all of us at different times need to grow up into different archetypes, no matter what age we are.
0: Yeah, no, I love that breakdown. I I really do. Um, because, uh, you you said it much better than I've ever been able to. Um, because, you know, that's my thing. When I hear about like toxic masculinity and all that, it's like masculinity in and of itself is not the issue. It's, it's, I like the words immature, shadow. I usually use the word corrupted because, you know, true masculinity, like you said, those fully realized uh, archetypes. You know, they're not gonna to wanna to see uh women mistreated, they're not gonna to wanna to see LGBTQ people mistreated, they're they're not gonna to wanna to see people belittled and made fun of. They're they're gonna be against all of those things that are associated with quote toxic masculinity, right? A
1: hundred percent. And I'm really glad you brought that up, Earl, because that's one of my pet peeves is the word toxic masculinity. Um because I actually don't believe in toxic masculinity. Um, I believe that, like you said, masculinity is not toxic, but there are aspects of masculinity that can be toxic. But to throw all of masculinity under that toxic thing, I prefer to use, like you said, immature or shadow. Because ultimately, language creates a reality. And so if we throw around words like toxic masculinity, we're essentially throwing masculinity under the bus. And I don't think that's what we want to do. We need fully expressed men to step up and lead, especially now, especially like in these times where we have, you know, so much VUCA, especially where we have all this, you know, political polarization and you know, environmental disasters and financial issues and all that. We need the mature masculine men to step up. And so, yeah, I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up.
0: Yeah, well, and again, I appreciate you unpacking it as clearly as, as you did there. That's uh because I agree, you know, I mean, and that's why we have those sayings like, you know, I'll fight today so you don't have to tomorrow and all those kinds of things like that. It's not really, you know, the self-aggrandizing and all that. It's it's what we truly believe we would rather we would rather fulfill some of those archetypes and, and, and roles right now so others couldn't uh and, and don't have to. You know, I mean I was lucky enough to serve in peacetime. Uh, but you know, I have friends who spent multiple deployments over in, in the Middle East in, in various uh, venues and yeah, nobody, nobody should have to see those types of things. And, uh, and, and not even just on a battlefield, but in a workplace, you know, I do uh, a decent amount of work with, um, uh, diversity and inclusion and hearing some stories about what women are put through by these immature or shadow archetypes. I mean, it's, it's appalling, and, yep. uh, yeah, no, I, I love it. And and that's l- for me, listeners, if you take nothing else away from, from this podcast, that last bit right there about fully understanding what masculinity really means, not what we've turned it into. If you take that away, I'm going to consider this discussion a success already. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, has to do with, uh, I believe the, uh, death of ritual in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at modern culture, we don't really have any real coming of age rituals. We kind of have these, uh, uh pseudo coming of age rituals. Um, you know, uh, the, the football team, or, uh, you know, joining the military. That's a great example. You know, you joined the military and you had to learn how to be a man in the military. but it's it's a bit informal, right? It's like it's like, yeah, you had your trial by fire by going into the military, but not everyone respected you for doing that. There are probably yeah. people who thought you were a dumbass for doing that. You know, why the hell would that's re- stupid? Why would he do that, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, it, 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 you know, it, it. We have these rituals that are not true rituals where people are like, "Oh, now he is a man." Um, you know, I went to a friend's uh, bar mitzvah. I'm I'm Jewish, and so I went to a friend's bar mitzvah, and it was like it's supposed to be when a boy becomes a man, and it was just kind of like a bunch of things where the kid got a bunch of presents and money and that was kind of it. There was nothing about stepping into mature masculinity. And his mother certainly didn't treat him, him different after his bar mitzvah. She still treated him like a 13 year old kid. Whereas traditionally, if you look at hunter gatherer societies, that's real serious stuff when you have the coming of age ritual and the boy at the end of that is no longer the man, the boy is expected to step into a role of protector, of provider, of magician, you know, of shaman, whatever, whatever his his role is, he's expected to step into that and live up to it. And you know what, nobody treats him like a boy after that, they treat him like a man. And so in this culture, there's no shortage of examples of men behaving like boys. And we can look, all around and see it all around us and that's really sad and i think one of the one of the ways to address it is through ritual.
0: Yeah, no I mean you bring up a good point. I mean cuz when you look back at like viking cultures and i mean basically every culture up until i don't know maybe i don't know 2 300 years ago maybe i'm being generous like you said, there was that clear ritual of, of, of becoming. And, you know, I'm just kind of curious and and maybe you don't have a good answer for that, but in, in modern society, uh, what, what would you see, you know, that ritual looking like?
1: Yeah, it can look different ways for different people. Uh, What the way it's looked for me was that when I was when I was younger I didn't have that ritual yeah I played sports so to a certain extent I had was able to to get it that way but honestly it wasn't until I started uh, doing men's work that I uh, felt like I actually had the initiation and of, of becoming a man and what I mean by initiation is not to say that I didn't uh, exhibit the uh, full expression of masculinity prior to that, I'm sure, like always, I said, we all have gaps, but uh, initiation looked like me joining a men's group. Uh, this one was called is, is called Mankind Project, and being taken through an initiation and being witnessed fully for who I was, that's what it looked like for me. And so there's lots of men's groups out there that are kind of doing these uh, initiations, so to speak. And so that's one way it can look. But if you don't have access to that, I highly recommend really looking into, um, number one, Jungian psychology. And there's there's a book called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover which goes through all of these archetypes and can start to show you as a man where it is that you are um doing well and maybe where you're not doing so well and the great thing about this book is women can read it too and it's incredibly helpful for dealing with the men in their lives so the first thing is just to arm yourself with some knowledge and then once you have some knowledge, you can start to see where it is that you might create these initiations for yourself.
0: Yeah. And again, I like that is, is you know, as we talk about dealing with these things in the workplace, in society, you know, it can't just be us working on it. Um you know, and, and so I like the fact that you invite women to kind of read the book and and, and be a part of the process there as well, because you know, one of the things that I've picked up on uh, you know, again, listening to YouTube channels and some of your other interviews is, you know, your idea of of um, you know, using frameworks and and mental maps to to better understand our environment and who we are. Um, And and that's kind of what you're talking about here, right? Is arming yourself with information to be able to better construct those schemas, those frameworks, those mental maps,
1: right? 100%. I'm a huge fan of frameworks and mental maps because, uh, you know, though, though the map is not the territory, it gives us a place to plant our flag and see where it is that we're excelling and see where it is that we might need to, to do a little work. So yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of using frameworks and I use other people's frameworks. I borrow people's frameworks. I come up with my own, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's all just a, a, a big process of finding out what it is that works for me and finding out what's worked for my clients.
0: Well, and I think that's the key right there is coming up with your, coming up with your own, right? because I can't tell you how many times I've went into an environment and I've had somebody meaning well come up to me and say, hey, uh, you know, avoid Bob. Bob is just the biggest asshole you've ever met in your life. Nobody gets along with him. Just stay away from him. And then fast forward a week or two later and Bob and I are like best friends. We're talking. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And and. It seems to me that one of the biggest problems with Bob is, yeah, Bob's got issues, but too many people just listen to that well-meaning person and take it for granted that Bob's just an asshole, there's no redeeming qualities, instead of taking the time to form their own framework about who Bob is, right?
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think what you're talking about is challenging your own assumptions and... Challenging the assumptions of others. I mean, that's if you really look at leadership, and I love the fact that we're talking about frameworks uh, because Ray Ray Dalio, who he's a very famous hedge fund uh, manager, Bridgewater wrote a book called Principles, and it's really it's 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 all about the principles that he's developed, and. um, one of the things that he's looked up and looked at in leadership is the one thing that leaders know is that they, they, they know their weaknesses. And what that allows them to do is it allows them to challenge their own assumptions because we are, we're always walk we're, we're basically assuming machines, right? I I assume, Oh, uh, you're in the military. You're in the military. You must have a certain political bent. That I just assume you have. Now I have no idea if that's true, and even if you do have, a, even if you do line up on one side of the aisle, you know I don't know what your beliefs are. So I can approach you with some idea of who you are, or I can say I have no idea with who who, who Earl is or what his values are. But I'm going to step in and have a conversation with him and get a feel for what those values are. Right. So it's like. One of the questions that Delio asks that I absolutely love is not how do I know if I'm right? It's how do I know that I'm not wrong? Mm. And so whether it's like COVID or, you know, your retirement account, how do you know you're not wrong? Not how do I know I'm right? Because that actually gets you to start challenging your own assumptions. And if you can't challenge your own assumptions, Man, you are going to have a hard time. And I always say, you know, when I meet somebody who's too sure of themselves, I run the other way. Because the way I look at it is the more knowledge you have, the less you know, the less you're sure of. So the more (laughs) knowledge you have, the less things you're absolutely sure of. And that is something that I'm absolutely sure of, Earl. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, no, and I love it. And and I know that he kind of paraphrased it, but uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, has a great quote that says, as, as the areas of our understanding grow, so do the perimeters of our ignorance. And oh, I think I that's just that. a beautiful way to look at it because, yeah, and, and it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing not knowing stuff because you get to learn more things, right?
1: Oh, my God, a hundred percent. and and that, you know, that is what we need more of in my opinion in this culture is we need people to be able to come in and start talk, talking to each other. whether you're coaching somebody, whether you're uh, somebody's boss, whether you are talking to your boss, whether you're having a political argument, whatever it is, how can you open yourself up to challenge your own assumptions? And then how can you make an agreement with the people in your life that you're both going to do that? That's where it gets really powerful. Because if you and I are having an uh, a you know having a, a conflict about something, and I'm super sure about where I'm coming from, but you're open to like what's happening, that conversation isn't going to be very, very productive because what's going to happen is I'm going to tell you how it is. And it's not a creative. Or interesting discussion. And when both of us can agree, all right, we're both going to challenge our own assumptions and see what happens without having to have some certain outcome, that's where creativity happens. That's where insights happen. That's where, um, you know, we figure out really complex solutions to really complicated problems. And that's, it's also fun too, when we're able to like be humble and step in and find out things that we didn't know before.
0: Yeah. No, I love that. That's 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 one of the things that's right in my wheelhouse is is cognitive diversity and and that's that's one of the things I try to get organizations to really wrap their their brains around is you've got all of this cognitive diversity, all of this problem-solving capabilities right here in your organization and and you're just most of the time we're letting it go to waste because we solve problems by putting a question out in a conference room, asking for solutions, and then the boss says, "Hey, this is what I think we should do," and because they're the boss, people just decide <laughs> to say, "Hey, well, the boss said it, so that's what it's going to be." Right. But we can leverage it so much better, right?
1: Oh man, you're 100 you're 100%, right? I love I love that cognitive diversity. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And I, and I agree with you 100%. I mean, so many organizations uh, and I work with organizations as well. so many so many of them are, like you said, are just top down, and it's it becomes a culture more about being right than finding the best solution. And if you're more concerned with being right, than finding out the best solution, you're not going to find the best solution. You're going to find subpar solutions because the fact is is that one person, one person uh, is always going to make mistakes. But the hive mind is going to, Come up with far better solutions that are far more resilient, that are taking much more, much more of the data and information into account, and you're just going to come up with better solutions. So yeah, I 100% agree with you and love the way you frame that up.
0: Oh no, appreciate. Yeah, no, that's it's one book. I've got like a short list of books I always recommend, but one of them is uh, James Sirwiky's Wisdom of the Crowd. Um, Oh okay. Yeah, I don't I don't know if you've ever read that. I'll
1: put that I'll put that on my list.
0: Oh, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, but it, it talks about that, uh, what we mm-hmm. were just you know chatting about here, because he, he uses an example in there, and, and Daniel Kahneman uh, used it in uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, mm-hmm. but he tells uh, a story of, uh, I guess it was a, a county fair in, in England, and they had a contest of, you know, who can guess the weight of the bull, I think it was, and they captured all the data throughout the, the process. And what they found out is, um, I want to say the, the the closest guess on an individual basis was somewhere with like an eight pounds. But once mm-hmm. they took every guess and and averaged them together, the crowd was within, I think it was like a pound and a half or two pounds. Um, Incredible.
1: And, yeah. <laughs> it's And it's that's great. without them weighing the cow, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly, and that was yeah. people that didn't know each other. You know, they had all those experiences. Some people had never seen a cow before. Some people were dairy farmers. You know, they all guessed, and yeah, it's it's great, it's great.
1: Yeah, I see that work. So, one of the things I do is I, I work at uh, uh, the Stanford Business School, and um, we run something called T groups, and T group is basically an experimental a learning and communications group and there's no agenda and it's just, you sit 12 people in a circle and you, and you see what happens and it provides a way for people to experiment with different communication styles, uh, influence, get a bunch of feedback. It's, it's really quite incredible. And one of the things that, um, you know, that one of the things that, that happens in that, uh, situation is that there's always people who are like, God, I don't know if I should say this thing that I'm thinking or if I should say this thing that I'm feeling. And inevitably, every time somebody has that thought and they say it, there's two or three or four or five other people who are who are in the group who said, oh, my God, I was having that same thought. Mm-hmm. And so it just shows that there's in information all over the place. We're all these like channelers of information. Where that information is coming from, I don't know. But this whole thing with the cow where it's like the wisdom of everyone together is, you know, magnitudes of accuracy higher. I mean, that says a lot. And that that shows why being so certain about things yourself is so dangerous. And, um, you know, really trying to get other inputs makes so much sense and something that I think we all can benefit from
0: no definitely and I always challenge people like you're 100% right and I always challenge people like yeah uh, I I rip off Bill Gates or not Bill Gates but the Steve Jobs there a little bit is like be the weirdo you know throw it out there you you never know (laughs) yeah (laughs) you never know um yeah so speaking of weirdos, because this is something I get called a lot because uh, I'm I'm a morning person. I'm usually up somewhere 4.15, 4.30 in the morning getting my day going. I know, wow. um, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I know, I was going to say, I know mornings are a big thing for you. I don't know how early you normally get up. um. But but I like what you talk about, about this, this morning rhythm and getting a morning routine going. And uh, if I was able to gather it right, you've got this kind of, like a five-step process for getting your morning routine yep. worked out?
1: I sure do. I sure do. Yep. So basically, um, yeah. Morning routines are really important because here's the fact you have a morning routine, like whether you're conscious about it or not conscious about it, you have one. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And so would you rather have a morning routine where you like roll out of bed and start scrolling through social media first thing and you're already kind of like drained before your day has really started or do you want to roll out of bed and like start doing things that are going to make you perform better and, and feel better throughout the day. So yeah, I have a, uh, I have a five step process that I teach all my clients. Um, you know, the first is to, uh, just actually decide what it is that you're going to do and, uh, and chunk it down. So say you want to, um, say you wanna meditate. Say you wanna get up in the morning and you wanna meditate for 30 minutes. I'm gonna meditate for 30 minutes every day. So you decide what you're gonna do, but then you chunk it down to something you can do in less than a minute. So instead of meditating for 30 minutes, you make a commitment, a non-negotiable commitment to meditating for three breaths. I'm gonna sit on my meditation cushion or sit sit on the chair and take three deep breaths. And that is my commitment. Now, if you meditate for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes, that's great. But your non-negotiable is to do something you can do in less than a minute. So let's say you wanna work out in the morning. Your non-negotiable should be something like I'm going to put on my workout clothes. That's my win. Now, if I go and work out, even better. But the, that's the first thing. Decide what it is and then chunk it down. And we'll talk about why that works so well in a second. The second thing you want to do is you want to stack whatever habit you have on top of another habit. So for me, I go downstairs. The first thing I do is I drink my water. And after I drink my water, I sit down to meditate. And So I have this little, this little dialogue inside my head. After I drink my water, I sit down and meditate. After I meditate, I do my breath work. And by stacking those things, I don't forget to do those things. Uh, The third thing you want to do is you want to make things easy. You want to remove roadblocks. So the data shows that. The difference between uh, people who show a lot of willpower and people who show very little willpower is that the people who show a lot of willpower use really easy strategies and the people who show very little willpower use really hard strategies. So let's take me, for example. I love sugar. If you put ice cream in my uh, freezer, it will be gone. (laughs) And uh, so what's the easy strategy? The easy strategy is no sugar in the house. The hard strategy is sugar in the house. And let's like, test my willpower about whether I'm going to eat sugar or not. Don't don't do it. Just don't do that. Right. Um, so you want to make things easy for meditation. I make sure that my meditation cushion is set up before I come down in the morning, I set it up at night. So I come down and I'm like, Oh, there's my meditation cushion, time to meditate. Um, the fourth thing you want to do is you want to Uh, get an activity partner or accountability buddy. So uh, the research shows that you are 95% more likely to do a habit if you do it with someone else. So, hey, you wanna meditate? Meditate with someone else on FaceTime or Zoom. Um, You wanna work out? Get a workout buddy. Um, Or join a gym and uh, join a workout class where if you don't show up, people are like, yo, Earl, where were you, man? And um, last but not least, number five is to celebrate. And uh, what I say is celebrate no matter what. So say I meditate for my uh, three breaths. The thing I need to do is I need to raise my arms up and go, yes, I meditated. Because what that does is if you're familiar with NLP, neurolinguistic programming, what it does is it actually potentiates the release of neurotransmitters in the brain And the more that you do that, the more your neurons myelinate, myelinated neurons basically are uh, superhighways for information. And the more uh, that information becomes a bigger superhighway, the easier it is to do. And then this is the last thing. If you forget to do your habit and you realize you forgot, you still need to celebrate. And the reason why is because usually what happens when people realize, oh my God, I didn't work out, I'll do it tomorrow, it creates this sort of negative psychological orientation towards negativity. You beat yourself up for not doing the thing. And that actually increases the chances that you won't do it the next day. So instead, when you realize you didn't do your habit, you need to do the same thing. You need to raise your arms in the air and go, I just realized I didn't do my habit and you know what? I'm going to get back on the horse tomorrow and that will make it happen. So just to reiterate again, you want to decide what you're going to do and you want to chunk it down. You want to stack the habit on top of uh, another behavior. You want to remove obstacles, create easy strategies. You want to get an activity or accountability partner and you want to celebrate no matter what.
0: Mm. No, I love it. It all makes so much sense. I mean, we could do a lot of deep diving into to just that, but you know, you by by celebrating you get more of like dopamine and oxytocin and all that versus uh, dreading you're, you're releasing cortisol and building up stress and all that good stuff, right?
1: Yeah, you are you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. It's um you know, you're basically using you're using neuroscience to create a good a good behavior and good habit. And the and the reason why you chunk these things down to their bare minimum is because, you know, maybe one day you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're getting up, you've gotta be on in a Zoom meeting in five minutes. Well, you can still sit down on that meditation cushion and take three deep breaths. And what that does is it means the next day, you are way, way more likely to do it again, and again, and again, because you're not always gonna wake up on the wrong side of the bed, and the thing about habits is consistency and consistency builds habits and habits create results.
0: I love it. I love it. Jonah, just like I said at the beginning, we're going to think it's two minutes later. And next thing you know, we're going to be 45 minutes into this conversation. And, and that's where we're at. Like I feel like we got another couple hours of discussion here, but, uh, uh unfortunately we're coming, uh, to the end of our, our allotted time. Um, but I'm just curious, before we do wrap things up, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, is there anything that you really want to leave listeners with that we didn't get a chance to cover? Mm,
1: that's a good qu- question. Um, I think we covered most of it. I think that I would just, uh, again, prompt uh, listeners to really ask themselves um, a powerful question that i that i like to leave everyone with and that is to ask yourself the question what is the most powerful question i could ask myself and you can you can do this for a business issue you can do this for a personal issue you can just do it in general and what i found is that when i ask that question and when my clients ask that question what comes up are better questions you know Tony Robbins, I'm not a huge fan of Tony, but uh, he does say that the quality of your life depends upon the quality of the questions that you ask, and so that is always a question that I love to leave people with, is what's the most powerful question you could ask yourself right now?
0: I love it. I love it. That is good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Jonah, so if people want to find out more about you, what you do, these these um, routines, um, what, what is a good place for them to go look? Yeah, my website
1: is the best place and I've set up a, uh, landing page actually, where you can download, uh, some of my worksheets and some of these frameworks at com slash responsible leadership. Um, and, uh, so there you can go and get various, uh, resources and all that Uh, regardless i am there on my website you can email me off there i'm also on instagram and linkedin and twitter Uh, i'm not super into the social media thing but if you reach if that's your preferred way of reaching out feel free i'll definitely message you back but the best way is just to go to my website if you want to get a hold of me send me an email give me a call i love talking to people
0: no, I love it. Then thank you for setting that 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 special landing page up. I really appreciate that. Um, and I'm gonna give another plug for for your YouTube channel. I'm gonna have a link on there. You got a lot of great information on there. Um, well again, buddy, uh, I really appreciate you spending you know this this last hour almost with uh, myself and and my listeners. I've learned a whole lot. I really appreciate what you're doing. I know my listeners have learned a whole lot. I know they're gonna go check out uh, the links and uh we'll get you some more uh subscribers to youtube and and all that good stuff thank you for your time and i just really want to say i appreciate the discussion we had here on the responsible leadership podcast today
1: and you as well earl i'm always like so thrilled to meet uh great human beings and uh i
0: can add another one to my list all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show. So these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Electric. Est. Electric Est. Welcome to the Candle Power
1: Hour.
0: you can.